0: Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah Lutheran Church's Bible study class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we are continuing our series over the book of Revelation. Enjoy.
1: Let's get into our, uh, into our study for today. I'm going to start with a correction, an official correction. Uh, from uh, some of the things that we talked about last time, I had made a historical error. I know, shocking and surprising, oh. <laughs> here as it may be, but I want to read this because um, the reference that I had made in terms of Isaiah 62 was that Isaiah was speaking to people who had uh, been, or had been carried off into exile in Babylon. And then uh, uh, it was brought to my attention that he died way before that happened. So uh, that would be impossible for him to do it. But anyway, let me, let me read the, the, uh, the reference here. So Isaiah, who lived from 701 B.C. to 681 B.C., during the time when the Assyrian invaders overran the northern king of Israel, he brought a prophecy of God's judgment and redemption to the people of Israel and Judah. Many survivors of the Assyrian war were carried off into exile. Judah's end, that was a southern kingdom, would not come until 586 BC when the Babylonians would conquer Jerusalem and then carry survivors off into exile in Babylon. In Isaiah 62, then, what he's doing is offering a message which projected a future of hope and God's control of all things. So one of the things that strikes me about about the prophets is that very often God would give them a foretelling of the uh, sort of judgment that would come, but then also out of that would be a message of redemption and hope, even before it occurred. The other thing that sometimes is a little confusing when we read the prophets is sometimes they use a, a technique which has them speaking in past tense as if something's already happened, but in fact it's looking into the future. And so that's kind of an interesting and sometimes a little confusing uh, aspect of of reading reading the Old Testament prophets. Um, There is a a name for that, but I've forgotten what the name is. Um, But it can sometimes confuse us into thinking he's talking about something that already happened. And sort of, in some sense, I think what that is, is that when you live in the reality of God's promises, then you live in the joy as if it's already happened, even though it hasn't. So to some degree, we could say that about ourselves and our life, our life uh, as Christians is that we live in the reality that for us, eternal life has already, the certainty of eternal life has already occurred, even though what? We're not there yet, right? And so that's kind of a cool way to think about it is that every day you live in the reality that heaven is yours, even though it's not yet Something that you 're celebrating and enjoying, okay, so does that make sense? I feel free anytime any of you to uh, help me adjust the uh, historical correctness of what uh, of what uh, what I talk about, and partly i'm I, I trying to be attentive to it because when things go out on the podcast, I can just imagine the uh, historians who listen are cringing as i uh, as I uh, sort of abuse the uh, historical facts and dates and all those kinds of things that go along with that. Okay, very good. All right, so let's get into our next section here where uh, we're kind of picking up where we left off where, the, where Jesus is giving to John uh, the message regarding the church at Thyatira. And so we're just going to finish up that part and then we'll get right into the church at Sardis. So to the angel of the church of Thyatira... Right. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who is the one? Not Jesus, because Jesus is being given to that one. Well, who is the one? Who is the one who is victorious and does my will to the end? Who is that? Believers, right? Believers, right? Okay, that's what that is. See, again, what, what Jesus is always doing in these uh, messages to the church, that's a common uh, phrase that he uses, to the one who is victorious. And we talked about that a little bit last time, or maybe it was the time before, is that sometimes we don't feel all that victorious, right? I mean, sometimes we have to take, maybe all the time, we have to take on faith the idea that we are, we are living a victorious life because of the victorious Savior that we have. It's just that if we look around us and we take into account how we might feel in a given moment, we don't feel all that victorious at all. It's a little bit of the Thomas story, isn't it? Sort of the same idea, you know. Thomas was was in the victory of Christ's resurrection, but he didn't he didn't know it, and maybe he knew it, but he didn't believe it. And so it's a little bit of that same sort of thing. If I if I only look at what I see, if I only take into account what I feel, if if the thing that matters the most to me is the experience I'm having right now. And then I take all of that and I say, okay, that's how I know I'm victorious. Oops. When life is rough, when life is tough, when things aren't going our way, we feel anything but victorious. And so, see, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel says, well, what you see and feel and experience, that, that's good. That's good. That's human. But the basis of your victory is found in Christ. And the basis of the joy that you have and the confidence that you can have in this life is based on what God did for you and Jesus, not on how you feel. See? Not on, on what you see. Because look around in the world today and we go, I don't think our, that our side is winning. Right? And it's real easy to conclude that on the basis. So, so he says, to the one who is victorious and does my will, that's the, the believer, I will give authority over the nations, and that one will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. So the, the idea of the nations here, when, when the Old Testament in particular talks about the nations, that's a designation very often for nations who assume a Godhead of themselves. So think of it in terms of Old Testament history. Which of the nations um, or the rulers of those nations thought of themselves as gods and assumed a divinity, which meant that they were now going to go mano a mano against God? Could you, can you remember from, from Old Testament stories that we've talked about? Egypt, Egypt yeah, that was a big one right there. That, that was it, it turned into not Moses versus Pharaoh, but it turned into God versus Pharaoh. Because the Egyptian belief was, was that Pharaoh was divine. Pharaoh was the god. Okay, what else comes to mind? Rome, Rome. yeah, the Caesars, we talked about that. The Caesars uh, said Caesar is Lord. And so there is a kind of a special designation or a special attention that God pays to uh, nations and to, uh, to rulers who would assume that they are the ones that the people should worship, does anything modern day come to mind yeah yeah, in almost, almost uh, all the communism communist countries take an, an assumption there that the communism is a state it 's a state god, so uh, whether it 's a, a, a despot like in in Korea or maybe it 's a committee like in communist China, wherever it is that that the state feels a threat by, uh, by Christians and significant persecution is going on. We have to wonder, that, is that included in this, uh, in this uh, uh, pr- prediction here from, from Jesus? So notice what he says is, I will also give that one the morning star. Now there's a reference in, further in Revelation that talks about that, Revelation 22. I've sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches, Jesus says. For I am what? The root and the offspring of David. Comes right out of Isaiah, right? And what? The bright morning star. Is there, now I'm not an astronomy person. What is, is there something that's considered to be the bright morning star in astronomy? Is that Venus? What is, is it Venus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, isn't that kind of cool? Yeah. So, whenever you see Venus, you can sort of think of that as the bright morning star, even though it's not technically a star. Okay? All right. So, again, it's just finishing up that particular prophecy given to the church at Thyatira. So, let's get into Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. We should just stop right there, don't you think? (laughs) Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you. Okay? So a few little notes here on Sardis. At one time had been the richest city in the world. Prosperity returned in 218 BC, but the city was eventually conquered because it was what? Sleeping in security. Isn't that interesting? People trusted solely in the strength of its walls and armed forces, but neglected the vigilance its citizens needed as well. When John wrote Revelation, the city had been rebuilt by Tiberius in the wake of a devastating earthquake in 17 AD. It became the center of the woolen trade in Asia Minor and was very wealthy, and it was also known as a pleasure-loving city. So that was quite an affluent area. It had gone through some ups and downs, but uh, each time that it came back uh, to life, so to speak, then the affluence even grew even more. Okay, so uh, Jesus is saying to John to write this about that church in, uh, in Sardis. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So what he's getting at here is that even though they had not suffered the sins of false doctrine, it seems that what happened was was that the people of the church had begun to kind of take on the personality of the community that they were a part of. And it makes sense because people of the community were also people in the community. And so if, if that sort of lack of diligence, if you will, was uh, permeating the community, well, then it made perfect sense that Uh, that that would also in some way affect the church if the church was uh, was not diligent about it. So the sense of it that we get here is that this church had become satisfied with itself. So the question that I've sort of put out there for us is in what ways might a church become satisfied with itself to the point where it could almost become dead in attitude and action even though the outward appearance of it seems to be vibrant and, and the reputation seems to be good. In what way could, might that happen? Or could that happen?
2: They lose sight of the simple reason for why they're getting the
1: blessing. Oh, okay. So you could get so involved in many things that you lose sight of the main thing, which would be the preaching and teaching of the gospel and administering the sacraments, that kind of thing. So it would be that you lose your sense of who you are and why you're there. Okay? Yeah, easy to do. Easy to do. Okay, what else? Thoughts? Content,
2: where they wouldn't want to grow more or reach out
1: more? Yeah, you know, that can happen. Um, Sometimes churches can become sort of like a country club, and not anything against country clubs, but it's just the idea that um, that group becomes very happy with itself, right? And, and it's a little bit like, you know, the, it's, like a, it's like a tribe or it's like a, it's like a club that we all know each other. And so we're all happy to see each other every Sunday or every time we meet. And then what happens when a stranger wanders in? You ever heard that t- terminology used before? Yeah, we had uh, some strangers came today. All right. Yes. Yes. And they probably thought we were strange, right? So Yeah, and so there's a a little bit sometimes of a little discomfort with that, right? Somebody comes in who doesn't know how we do things around here, right? What? Oh, my gosh. The horror stories of somebody sitting in somebody's pew, you know. Oh, my gosh. I know I'm so... I'm so conscious of, of the possibility of doing that when I go and do some work for another church and, and I'm not here on Sunday, but I'm sitting in the pew, is that I make sure I'm the last one to sit down, especially in some of the smaller churches. It, it's, it, it happens in big churches too, but, um, but in some of the smaller churches, you know, somebody has been sitting in the same pew and the same seat in the same pew forever, Right? And so then if you go down and you're like a visitor and you sit down, and I've heard stories of, of that happening, and when it did, that was the last time we saw that person at church, you know? And I don't blame it. I can't blame them for that. I mean, it's very, like, kind of embarrassing, and yet, you know, why are we here? So, there is the, so that's always a possibility, too, that um, we, had, we take on too much of an ownership of our church, Right and we forget whose church it actually is, which is which is Jesus' church. Any other thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, uh, Kathy and then Richard. The, um, sometimes with, with churches, the,
2: the senior person that had passed becomes almost, he becomes the focus, and then it's almost like a cult.
1: Could be, yeah. Yeah, and if
2: you're not really keeping it. Jesus takes the back seat because the focus becomes this, you know,
1: it can be, you know, um, it's been it's been said about pastors, there's a tendency to have an I'm ego, not, not to have an ego, yes, I mean, part of it, you're up front all the time, and people are telling you how wonderful you are, and how life-changing your sermon was, and so, you know, after a while, you start believing it, I mean, <laughs> you know. Why not? But there is a, when, when we have a human connection to, to a leader, it's almost natural to sort of Put a lot into that, and then, and I'll tell you where where sometimes it does um, show up even in Lutheran churches, is when um, when the when the pastor leaves or when he goes and takes a call or if he dies and goes to heaven, um, then what happens is people kind of feel a little lost in the sense of, and so sometimes people will leave a church then. Now again, that's just that's not a sin per se, but that's just kind of what can happen, right, in terms of how it can be be that. Yeah, Richard, you had your hand up.
0: I was going to say, um, not looking
2: at the, the outside community and how they need to be reached, just like the starting of the podcast. Yeah. I mean,
1: I'm sure you were uncomfortable. And Very so, uncomfortable. You know, and if, you would, if we could all travel back 50 years in time and yeah. say... And in the future, the church will record classes and send them out to everybody. Right. People say, you're crazy. Right. You know, but to be aware of the outside. That's right. Again, sometimes what can happen is churches, and it's at a little bit of that satisfaction with each other, but it's also the security that comes from that is the feeling that the culture out there is the enemy instead of the mission field. And so, when we take that view, then what happens is we become sort of I want to be closed off from it, rather than do I want to engage in it in some way? And it's risky to engage with it. Okay, you might get shot down, you might get shot, you might get you know whatever. And so, um, but that's a risk that Jesus has called us to do. So it we're not told in specific terms what had happened here. But uh, I, I include the, the reference to James 2:26 because that's also a pertinent scripture when it comes to thinking about the relationship of our faith and the doctrines of our faith. And then how do we live our faith out? There's a, there's a link between the two. And so let's look at what James says. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds." You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So, again, he's not saying that we're saved by works. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we're saved by faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. That's the the grace part, the salvation part. But then when you have it, how's it showing up? And in some sense, it, it seems like the church in Sardis... Was doing real good at saying this is what we believe and this is what we're about, but when it came to actually demonstrating it within their community as well as outside, that perhaps that was what uh, uh, attributed or Jesus attributed to to their deadness. So what does he say to them? He says, "Do what. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Your deeds are unfinished." So I love that word "wake" because literally it means to be continually awake, which is different than just wake up. Oh, I just woke up, and then I went back to sleep, right? Okay, that's what it sort of sounds like, but here is wake up and stay awake, and the way to think about that is to be discerningly alert, to stay alert to what's going on around you in terms of the community and how might then the gospel be able to be preached and shared with those that are around you. And so then he says, remember what you've received and heard. That's a common, actually Paul talks, uses that terminology, received and heard in terms of the doctrines of the faith, that the doctrines of the faith are really important. It's really important that not only that we know what we believe, but then also that we recall it and that we share it and that we teach it. Some people have done studies today, studies on why people today join churches. And they, they come up with these sort of surveys of, you know, all the 20 things that people say, this is why I join a church. Okay? Can you think of what some of them, those things might be, why people join churches? get married. So, so yeah, they do. They, of course, then that's the last time you see them is after they get married sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, that's a struggle for me sometimes because I will get, I will have a request to do a wedding of a non-Christian or non-church-attending person. And there's always that thought in my mind of, well, if I do this, I'm establishing a relationship with them, which I do through the premarital stuff I do. And that maybe that might be an opportunity to share the gospel, which I take advantage of that. And then maybe perhaps I can encourage them to be involved in church and hardly ever. Hardly ever does it play out that way. So it's always a hope, but it doesn't often work that way. We don't
2: know. Huh? We don't know. It may, years down the
1: road. Well, it can, and that's always the the part that I hang on to, is that the gospel gets shared, and the relationship is established. And so maybe it will be a long time from now, you know. Maybe I'll be in heaven, and I'll sort of look down and say, oh, yeah, hey, it happened, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not... I don't turn it down, but I'm aware of the statistics of it are pretty minimal in terms of uh, the, the, what comes back in the form of a, a active membership in a church. Okay, what else? What are some reasons that people would attend a church or come to a church or join a church, do you think?
2: Status.
1: Pardon? Status. Could be status. So in some communities, the hot church in town is the one you want to be at, right? And uh, if you're there and you're a member You can network with other people that are there because it's good for business, it's good for your um, reputation. You can say, oh, and I'm a member of. Okay, so that's a possibility. Yeah, I'm sure that happens to us all the time here, so yeah, yeah.
0: Activities provided for kids and
1: adults. Yeah, activities provided for kids and adults. So a lot of people are looking for um, activities, uh, planned activities and organized activities and the facility to, uh, to do that in. Um, one, one of the struggles sometimes that small churches have is that they don't have the budget. They don't have the, the manpower. They don't have the facilities to where you can, like, do stuff with kids. And so then that's kind of a little bit of a struggle sometimes. That was for us when I served in small churches. Somebody else. Yeah, Lawrence. Back in uh,
2: 1957, early 57, when my wife and I decided to get married, I called a... Uh, Preacher that I knew way back uh, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen him in years, and I asked him if he would uh, do the marriage ceremony. The first thing he said was, Is she a member of the church?
1: Yeah. That's the first thing he said. That's usually what gets asked, yeah. Well, I said, uh, Yeah.
2: He said, Okay, where are you going to get married? And I told him, What's the address? And I told him, I said, you know how to get, you don't know mean to tell you how to get there? He said, no, I'll find it. And that was there. Mm-hmm. But that was the first thing he said to me. He said, you a member of the mm-hmm. church, which I took to mean if she's not, he, he's not going
1: to perform the day. Yeah, some churches, that's their policy. So sometimes the pastor is the one that's called upon to deliver the bad news. And that's no fun to be that guy, Okay. Um, probably could have been handled a little bit smoother, you know. But, uh, but sometimes that, and in fact, most cases, that is the policy that the church decides, sort of, sort of thumbs up and th- thumbs down. That hasn't. I don't think that's. I don't think we're. Do we have that policy? I don't think so. If we do, we've been breaking it left and right. So, you know, yeah. So, um, but but it, it, again, it's just a little bit. I think part of that that thinking is is that. When a pastor invests a lot of time and energy into um, a couple who want to get married, that's not just the wedding deal. Maybe in the early days it was, but, but nowadays, um, at least I do, spend a lot of time doing the premarital. And, uh, and so it's not like, oh, I want to do it just because you're going to join the church. It's not that. But it also is a joy when a relationship is established and then it stays that way. Okay, that's the beauty of it. So that's the thing. Okay, one more. Anybody else have any thoughts about why people join churches? It's interesting. Yeah, go ahead.
0: you
2: were brought up in a church, and so you move and you go find one that reminds you of your childhood
1: or or not. Or not. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes people say... I am never going to a church like that ever again. And they look over here for that. And you know what happens when they do that? Inevitably, the new church that they join is eerily similar to some of the stuff that they dealt with in the other church that they didn't like. Okay. So now what's interesting about all our answers and is indicative of of the way many people think today is that we didn't mention the doctrines and beliefs of the church that people would join that church because of what it believes. Now we all sort of assume that, but, but we can't make that assumption anymore. It used to be that that was the number one reason that people gave, well the reason why I go to that church is because um, it believes uh, in Jesus as Savior and Lord and it's sacramental and it's all the stuff that Lutheran churches are. And so I think what happened over the years is that we started to assume that that would happen. <laughs> And then we woke up one morning, wake up, we woke up one morning and it wasn't that way anymore. And, we, and, and it's like society changed, it's like the culture changed. And said, well, we're way more interested in the fact that you have a lot of youth activities for our kids, that you have a vibrant program, which is a good reason to join initially, but if that's the only thing that keeps you there, what happens when your kids graduate from high school? Then you don't see them anymore. Okay, so there is just kind of this sort of pressure on churches a lot of times to meet those felt needs that people have. But sometimes we get into meeting felt needs and we're not thinking about the scriptural stuff. We're not thinking about the doctrinal stuff. Okay, All right. So so he says, remember what you've received, heard, hold fast and repent. So notice what Jesus is saying is you got to go back to the foundation, right? You got to go back to the word, you got to go back to the sacraments, and you have to keep holding on to that because of the fact that the pressures from the outside, the pressures from the community, the pressures from the culture will keep trying to convince you that yeah, 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 what you believe, that's, that's fine, but, it, but all this other stuff is what really matters. And that's where we have to stick our nose in the word, Right. That's where we're gathering together in uh, Bible class, in Bible study. That's where we're wrestling with the word to, uh, to keep it alive and vib- vibrant in our lives. Okay, so let's go on to verse 4. He says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So notice he says there are some of the people there at the church who aren't dead. Right? They're still alive. That that vibrant faith is still there. And they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. What makes them worthy? yeah it's jesus's worthiness covers them see jesus's worthiness covers us so it's not that what i do or that the good person i am or how sincere i am somehow makes me worthy i don't have anything in me that can can merit worthiness the best i can do is stand before him as a sinner well that isn't much right So what does he do is he takes his worthiness and he he, he covers me with it. That's what that forgiveness is about. All right. And so notice what he says about that. He says, I will never blot out the name of that person from what? The book of life. Okay. Book of life. So what is a book of life? What is that? There's a giant book. It must be a big book because there's a lot of people's names in it, right? I will never do that. Now, I'm trying to think what it is I want to know without putting myself into a trap here. Yes. Um, how do you get your name in the book of life? How does your name end up there? Faith in Jesus, right? Trusting in him, the whole thing. And then your name is in the book of life. So how can you ensure that you will never be blotted out of the book of life?
2: That you're a true believer to begin
1: with. I don't know what you mean by true, but what I mean is.
2: (laughs) Jesus, God
1: knows. Well, again, it's a true believer and a believer. Okay. I, do I believe in Jesus as my savior and Lord for the forgiveness of my sins? I'm a believer and I'm a true believer. And Staying in that faith means that my name will continue in the book of life. You comfortable with my saying it that way? I'm trying to come up with human words that will indicate this. Finish the race. Do what? Finish the race. Finish the race. Yeah. But it's but it's again, it's this idea that remaining in faith, trusting in the grace of God through Christ, means that. He keeps my name in the book of life. What?
2: God is our mission. He knew there. He knows who's going to be faithful to the end.
1: That's right. I'm backing up again. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And so, because he knows, see, sometimes what happens is we get confused with the idea that the difference between God's knowing ahead of time and then God's predetermining something, okay? The, and that's where people, a lot of peop, times people make the mistake. well, if God knows, then he must have predetermined it. And if he predetermined who was going to be in the book of life, then he also predetermined what? None. Who wasn't, okay? That was, the, that was where John Calvin went with double predestination. And that was the use of that that uh, doctrine of predestination for purposes of which it was not intended. So where would, if, if I was a Christian living in Sardis or just the early church at that time, where there is a significant amount of Christianity, uh, a persecution for Christianity, of what comfort would it be to know that my name is in the book of life? After suffering, you're with him. That's right. See... Because in the suffering, there might be moments of doubt where I go, is this real? Can I really trust in it? What if my faith wanes at that moment and I become, as Jesus refers to, a smoldering wick or a bruised reed? See, would I have to worry that, "Uh uh-oh, I had just rejected Christ? I had just done something to my faith in such a way that I'm no longer in the book of life. I wouldn't have to worry about that. See, and that's what what that doctrine is about. It's it's intended for people's comfort and reassurance even in times of struggle and difficulty and persecution. Where you yourself would look at yourself and go, I don't think I have faith anymore. I don't think I'm strong enough to deal with this. Then, boom, book of life. Oh, you're in there. See, isn't that great? Okay. So I'm real careful to say that we don't put ourselves there. God does, right? But the way that he, the means that he provides for that is by his grace, we are saved through faith in Jesus. If I reject the faith, then I'm not in the book of life. And that's hardcore. That is hardcore because in today's world, People want to say that is not true. That is not true. They say God loves everybody, and so on the basis of that love, everybody's in the book of life, regardless of what you believe and regardless of what you teach. And that humanly feels better, doesn't it? That nobody would be damned. Nobody everybody goes in the book of life. There's no hell. Right? Doesn't that feel better? Yeah, it feels better, especially if you know somebody if they're in your family or if they're in your circle of friends or whoever you hang out with, and they are people who say, I don't believe in any of that stuff. That makes us uncomfortable, the idea that that person's not in the book of life because they're rejecting the very thing that God provides as a way of being in the book of life. Yeah?
2: Well, the Bible also says, Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be open." A lot of people seek, a lot of people find. That
1: they forget to knock. Yeah, and you know, the, in the original language, it's an I-N-G. Seeking, knocking, looking. A lot of people look once, and then that's it. Yeah. Okay, does that make sense? And So, so there, there is this sense of, uh, of, uh, that he promises that as faith in Christ is ours, he does not qualify that by saying how much faith. Because sometimes we have a lot of faith. And sometimes we look at ourselves, you know, navel-gazing, and we go, oh, I don't see it there. And a lot of times, again, that's kind of based on the circumstances around us and what we're dealing with and how, maybe how much uh, trauma we've experienced or how much grief we're, we're in the middle of. And it's hard to, su- to all the time say, oh, I have the strongest faith ever. Thank goodness it's not about how strong it is. It's about what God did for us. Yeah. Oh yeah, Carl. So verse
2: thirty-three. It says, "Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out the book of life." Could be read as, "I oh, will erase you from the book of life." But that can't be because God foreknows and writes,
1: writes only. About oh, you're, we haven't got to the Exodus one yet, but thank you for pointing that out. That's a yeah, because notice in the in the Exodus reference in Exodus thirty-two, there is a reference to this. All right, let's look at that. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. Does anybody know what the great sin was? Yeah, idolatry. So they they had made a God out of gold, right? So if you make a God out of gold and commit the sin of idolatry and then you're worshiping, that's your God. Okay? Then you're not in the book of life. Well, what if... They were in the book of life, and then they did that. He says, you, So he says, I, you, you have created great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So see, Moses was very worried about this turn of events, and he was willing to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people so that God would not punish the people and say, oh, you, you all are unbelievers. So Moses went back to the Lord and said... Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, it's important to know the sin he's talking about. He's talking about the sin of what? Idolatry. He's not talking about your everyday sin. Although you could argue that everyday sin is basically I want to serve myself and not God, okay? But there, there is in the Old Testament in particular, you know, God really uh, reserves his wrath very often for people who turn against him and then teach others to do the same. And that's different in some sense than everyday sin that we would all commit, Okay? Does that sound weird saying it that way? But if you look at, you think about the Old Testament stories, when God expressed his wrath, like opening the earth up and people are falling in like a Lord of the Rings movie, you know, kind of thing. Or, um, or snakes coming down and biting people. You know, all those stories of that. Well, they come on the heels of what? Of people turning to the Baal gods which were the gods of the Egyptians and also the gods of the Canaanites. God has little tolerance for that, but the reason for it is is because he knows that that uh, is not the way to heaven. The way to heaven is through by grace through faith in him. Okay, So, you know, it's kind of interesting with this, uh, the book of life idea, is it sort of like once you're there, you're always there? Can you assume that? Or is it that you're in there, but then he has some whiteout up in heaven, you know? And, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's just one of those interesting things. But, but again, the book of life is a little bit of a, a metaphor, if you will, or, or a simile in terms of how, how do we describe this? How do we describe this? And so the key here is stay faithful, uh, 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 celebrating and enjoying and believing in the grace through faith that we have received uh, via Jesus. Okay? And then, would you ever have to worry? No. Yes. You have a look on your face right now.
2: At this uh, sentence Whoever has sinned against me, I will
1: of uh, my book. hmm. Well, That's why the, the, the particular sin he's talking about here is making a false God. Okay? Yeah, it's a little, that's a different gig, because that involves now I don't believe in God anymore. We would say atheism, we might say that, okay? That
2: would make it seem like God thought he was going to be in the book of life, and I think once you're in the book of life, you're
1: going to stay there. I think so. If Once I'm in the book of life, I want to stay there, yeah. okay? So I'm going to keep my faith in Jesus, trust in that, and even though, like he said today in the gospel reading, blessed are you who have not seen and yet what? Believe. believe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Eddie. Uh, uh, it is clear
2: if we commit the sin of idolatry, then we disappear from the book of
1: life. But otherwise, it's, it's difficult to de- determine what is the unless moment. Mm-hmm. How can you stay in the book of life? Yeah. Unless you do this, or don't do something else, yeah. or what are the requirements? Right. It, it's hard for us to grasp the idea of God's grace as being the thing that keeps us there. Because we know that we mess up all the time, and we think, oh boy, oh geesh, I did one too many sins, and now I'm out of the book of life, or I'm right on the fringes about to fall off the edge of the book of life, Okay. And, and so that's where I think the, the encouragement here or the admonishment here is stay in, the, stay in your faith. Stay like he says. Yeah, that's right. Hold on to it. And don't assume that, that, oh, okay, I know it, and then I don't have to practice it. Oh, I know it, then I don't have to stay in the word. See, I think he's warning against that because that would lend itself to this deadness that 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 church was experiencing they can say oh we know all that and i think he's saying repent get back in the word don't don't assume that that oh uh you know your faith will stay strong forever it has to get be fed okay maybe it's a way of saying that yeah very good okay well guess what um we're done for today and i got to go back to work so we will get to the church of philadelphia the city of brotherly love, the home of the Philadelphia Eagles. We will, we will, uh, we will go there next, uh, next week. Okay. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our uh, time together today. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. Even though that word was written so long ago, it is oh so relevant in our lives today as we also are in a society and a culture that's that is at the very least questioning your existence and the value you would have in our lives and then at most is, is flat out denying it. So Lord, that makes the community that we're part of a great mission field and that gives us the opportunity to share the faith, to live the faith and to be people of the book of life. So Lord, as we go about our week uh, days of this week, we pray that you be with us, give us opportunity to share and to live. And until we're together again, watch over us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, Please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.